0: Let's get some perspective on these Russian siege tactics. Joining us is retired Army four-star general and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander General Wesley Clark. Uh, general Clark, thanks for for being with us. You saw Phil Black's report; these just horrific attacks on Mariupol. I'm wondering what your your reaction to to this strategically. Is this simply to destroy any resistance in that vitally important town to the Russians, so that they can move in without engaging in street by street combat.
1: That's exactly right, Anderson. That is part of what they're doing. They don't have the skills or the personnel to really do that urban fighting. But this is also a campaign of intimidation and terrorism. And what they want to do is use Mariupol as the example to the rest of Ukraine and to the world to show that Putin means what he says. He's going to take it no matter what the cost. He doesn't care about civilian casualties or the rules of warfare or any humanitarian issues. He wants he wants what he wants. He doesn't care how many people are killed. He's going to take it. And that, coupled with the diplomatic discussions going on with Lavrov today, just another example of how the Russians operate. So uh, the diplomatic discussions, they raise hopes in the West. They forestall decisive action by NATO member states and other states. They slow things down at the UN, they give the Russians more time to put the squeeze on, and they also put the pressure on Zelensky to explain, well, why didn't he, why is he allowing this to continue? This is all part of an integrated Russian strategy run by Vladimir Putin. This shows uh, the, this is the foretaste of what could happen to Kyiv if we don't provide the support that's needed and provide that support in the immediate future. I hear a lot of discussions about, well, maybe there'll be a guerrilla campaign and things like this. Yeah, that's a great excuse for not providing the support. There've been campaigns of guerrilla warfare for centuries in Ukraine. The last, after the Second World War, it was quickly shut, uh, shut down. The Russians aren't us. They don't have human rights courts of law, they just arrest people, shoot them or disappear them. So we shouldn't expect that if Kyiv falls, there's going to be a great wall of resistance that lasts forever and bogs Putin down in Ukraine. It's not going to be that way. These people that are left behind will either accommodate it or they'll be eliminated. Look, Anderson, in 2015, when when Russia was going into Syria, I heard people in the White House saying. Well, let him have the quagmire in Syria. You know, he can't do anything with it. Wrong. Russia's in Syria now and Israel, our ally that we've done so much for for 70 years, won't support us and what we're doing in Ukraine because they consider Russia occupying Syria as their northern neighbor and they're afraid. Hmm. So don't underestimate the consequences if we don't provide Ukraine the military support it needs now. You know, we've had a big imbroglio about this, about these uh, Polish MiGs. We've, we've dissed the no-fly zone. Look, I'm not on the inside of things in the Pentagon. I can't tell you what all the gives and takes are, but I will tell you this. There are ways to get significant assets in to help Ukraine. And we must not think that we can somehow let this country slip away and be unaffected by it. The strongest way to defend NATO now is to support Ukraine. It's a stronger opponent against Russia than anything we've got. And if we let Ukraine slide away and lose Kiev and Zelensky goes, China's watching. Taiwan's there. There are other NATO countries that are vulnerable. America's credibility is on the line. And also the rules based international system is on the line. The place to defend that system is here and now in Kiev. And somehow. Our military and political leaders got to find a way to do it. They got to take the risks. Got to keep them in the conflict against Russia. If we do that, it is winnable.
0: Hmm. It's it's an interesting perspective and an important one that you say. The difference is, you know, uh, when you're fighting a guerrilla against a guerrilla force, if you have, if you don't care about a civilian population, if you don't care about overreacting and just eliminate everybody. Um, it's much harder it's much easier to defeat a guerrilla force than it is when you have different uh, concerns and concerns about uh, killing innocent civilians general Clark I appreciate your time tonight thank you ahead a live update on the mass exodus to escape the
2: A discussion among Western allies over how to indirectly provide Ukraine with fighter jets has been overshadowed by concerns that any overt military support could raise the risk of a wider conflict. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg cautioning against anything that could escalate the war.
3: NATO has a responsibility to ensure that this conflict does not escalate beyond Ukraine. Because this would be even more dangerous destructive and deadly for Ukraine and for all of us.
2: And I'm pleased to be joined now by Wesley Clark. He is a retired four-star general of the U.S. Army and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. A very warm welcome to the day, sir. Um, 23 years ago, In March, 1999, NATO, under your command, intervened in Kosovo. When you look at the refugees fleeing Ukraine, when you look at these long lines arriving in Germany, in Poland, uh, does that bring back memories from those times?
1: Yes, it does.
2: Back then in Kosovo, NATO intervened. Now in Ukraine, as we've heard, NATO saying that it's best to stay out. Uh, How do you explain that to a Ukrainian family that is hiding in a bomb shelter?
1: It's inexplicable to the Ukrainian family in a bomb shelter. I understand what the NATO Secretary General is saying. He's a, he's a superb leader, and, um, and uh, he's done an excellent job with NATO. But the truth is that NATO has to come to terms, and the United States has to come to terms with the implications of what this aggression means by Russia-directed against Ukraine. The, any negotiations will be determined by the outcome on the ground. The outcome on the ground is determined by the resistance of the Ukrainians. The Russians have proven themselves a relatively inept force. And I would remind all of our European listeners that escalation by Mr. Putin is not solely under the control of NATO. No matter what NATO does or doesn't do, Mr. Putin may decide to escalate. So it's imperative that we sustain the Ukrainian forces in the fight. The Russian forces are defeatable on the battlefield. And even if they aren't, as Secretary Blinken has said... Russia can face a strategic defeat over the midterm from this. And what does that actually look like
2: in practical terms, sustaining Ukrainian forces?
1: That means providing them javelins, stingers, and as much uh, anti-air and air support as is feasible to do. So do you you support uh, a
2: no-fly zone in Ukraine?
1: No. No, you can't do a no-fly zone because legally— All the aficionados who think they know everything about air power say you can't do it legally. It could have been done before Russia attacked. But at that point, the nations of the world were not ready to believe that Russia would attack. Now it's not possible to do a legalistic no-fly zone. However, air support can be provided by nations who are willing to go in. This airspace does not belong to Russia. I want to remind your listeners that this is Ukrainian airspace, and it's the president of Ukraine, appealing for international support. So uh, nations should think about this. If their nation is under assault, they want international support. It's their nation. So I, I give a lot of credence and a lot of credit to President Zelensky. He's proved to be a very courageous leader. And I think the nations of the West have to find ways to support Ukraine.
2: But by NATO sending in air power, that would mean U.S. aircraft would be would be need would, excuse me would need to be ready to shoot down Russian planes.
1: I'm not going to get into the dispute about whether U.S. aircraft shoot down Russian planes, wave at Russian planes, or avoid Russian planes. This is for the president of the United States and the official leaders to decide upon and determine how to proceed. What I will say is that the future of the West determines is determined in large part by what happens in this conflict in Ukraine. It is in the interest of every country in the West to support Ukraine on the ground. How we're doing that, that's up to the leadership. And uh, there's no point in in someone like me who doesn't have access to the real-time intelligence trying to prescribe a military plan to military leaders who are under national political authorities. They have to know how to do that. When I was in uniform, I did.
2: But surely sending in air power, I just want to come back to this point, that would mean um, conflict. I mean, it would mean that the United States and NATO allies would have to be ready to go head to head with Russian planes. And surely that would be an escalation that could lead to um, Putin, who has threatened, who has put his nuclear forces on high alert um, to come back in a way that it's no exaggeration could say could lead to World War III. Well,
1: Let me ask you this question. If after Putin has digested Ukraine, he decides that he wants to finish his political objective by rolling NATO back out of the other countries of Eastern Europe who are now hosting NATO troops, do we at that point say, oh my goodness, since you might have nuclear weapons against us, we'll surrender? What do we do then?
2: How likely do you think you that, that would to, be, to, that to he would invade and no. NATO allied countries? You and, our nation,
1: you and our national leaders have to realize this. Putin's objectives are not limited to Ukraine. This is about rolling back the westernization, the rule of law, the international order in Europe and the rest of the world. This is simply the first battle. It is the easiest of the battles to fight if our nations are unified and can face reality in this. If we fall back and are intimidated by Mr. Putin's threat of nuclear weapons, if there's nothing we can do to help Ukraine, then, Um, will be dealing with the next crisis on NATO's territory itself.
2: So what do you think Mr. Putin has in his sights? Are we talking about NATO-allied states that you think he would intervene in?
1: Certainly, if you talk to the nations in Eastern Europe, they'll tell you precisely what their fears are. Mm -hmm. From as long as I've dealt with the Russians in the post-Cold War period, they've always believed that the Baltic states belong to them.
2: And so, does they that then think,
1: think that? Moldova do you think that they Russia think is currently is
2: winning on the ground in Ukraine?
1: Russia is not winning on the ground. It's right now uh, checkmated on the ground, or at least checked on the ground, by poor logistics, communications, and the stiff resistance of the Ukrainians. It's do you not winning, that to change? yet. but it could change. The Russians uh, have no regard for civilian casualties. They do have a lot of heavy firepower. And uh, they do have an air force that could be more uh, deeply engaged. Uh, Today, they're bombing civilian targets in Mariupol. Um, I'm convinced Mr. Putin's got an eye on the International Criminal Court. He's trying to steal Ukraine as quietly and quickly as he can using the threat of nuclear weapons. But he will use massive firepower if necessary. So it's we, clearly not going
2: a- quietly. I want to ask you how surprised you were by the determination uh, of Ukraine's army and its citizens in pushing back against this invasion.
1: I wasn't surprised by the Ukraine's determination or their army's effectiveness. I've been over there many years. However, I will tell you this. I was surprised by the ineffectiveness of the Russian military.
2: All right. That was retired U.S. General Wesley Clark. I want to thank you so much, sir, for joining me here on the day.
1: Thank you very much. Good interview. Thank you.
4: We uh, go now, well, we'd like to turn now to uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. He's a retired U.S. Army officer and the former commander of U.S. forces in Europe. And he joins us from Frankfurt, Germany. A very good day, sir. So good of you to make some time out uh, to speak to us. Why is sending weapons into Ukraine acceptable, but sending fighter jets untenable, according to the Pentagon?
5: Yeah, I I completely disagree uh, with this decision um, by the Pentagon or the announcement, if that's the case. I'm not sure that the book is closed on this. Um, I I love the initiative by Poland uh, to give capability that Ukrainians need so they can defend themselves. Uh, I'm sure it's more complicated uh, underneath than it seems. uh, And that I'm willing to bet that we're going to eventually get there. Uh, But to the point of your question, I I would not make the difference that, you know, providing aircraft is bad, but providing javelin is good or acceptable. So um, I hope that we get this fixed very quickly.
4: Um, Would you be in favor of NATO intervening or enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine, as the Ukrainians have been pleading NATO to do?
5: Well, for sure, we cannot repeat what we did at Srebrenica in 1995, where uh, European soldiers under a U.N. mandate stood outside the city while 8,000 Bosnian men and boys were murdered by Republic of serbska forces. So we, we can't do that, we're watching deliberate murder of Ukrainian citizens every single day because they're being targeted by Russian forces. Still, this is not inconsequential. If NATO gets inside Ukrainian airspace and on the ground in Ukraine, that be- that potentially changes the nature of what's going on here. For sure, NATO air forces would destroy Russian air forces. But the bigger point is, what are the implications? And And we want to preserve the unity of the alliance. So this is not a decision to be taken alone by the United States. I do think it's worth considering, though, Uh, Most of the damage that's being done in the cities is not by the Russian Air Force. It's being done by uh, systems on the ground, missiles, rockets, artillery fired from uh, Russian uh, units inside Ukraine and also inside Russia and by the Black Sea Fleet. What can we do to help Ukraine destroy those? Anti-ship capability, more intelligence, longer range uh, systems where Ukrainians could destroy the source of this damage.
4: So how long do you think that, the, that Ukraine's army could withstand this Russian onslaught? Do you think that the longer this war goes on, the harder it will be for Russia to win it, or the more difficult it will be for Ukraine to stand its ground?
5: No, Absolutely. Ukraine um, uh, is going to win this. Uh, Russia is not going to get into Kiev. Uh, the, Russia has made the decision to transition to attrition warfare. And to do that, you have to have time, you have to have uh, unlimited ammunition, and you have to have unlimited manpower. And Russia has none of those three. The the sanctions are going to begin to take uh, real effect in the next few weeks, uh, and that's going to affect their their time as well as their population. Uh, They do not have unlimited ammunition. We're already hearing reports of shortages of some key munitions. Again, sanctions help here. And they have a manpower problem. Now They've already stopped the departure of some troops who are uh, due to end their conscription and they're trying to recruit uh, mercenaries from Syria. So uh, this manpower problem is big for them, whereas the logistical effort from the West for Ukraine is only just now picking up speed. Mm. So I think actually time is on the side of Ukraine.
4: But the Ukrainians are outgunned and outnumbered. I mean, how can they possibly win this?
5: Actually they're, actually, they're not outnumbered. Uh, there's more than two hundred thousand troops in Ukraine's land forces, and then you've got a very large territorial force. and then we've seen very clearly that the um, Ukrainian population is willing to fight to to do things. Uh, Russia does not have that many soldiers inside inside Ukraine. So there is not they're not outnumbered. Clearly, the Russians have the advantage from sea power, and at this point, air power but they have not demonstrated uh, the overwhelming air power superiority that frankly i would have expected so i think that in this case because the logistics is going to improve is improving for the ukrainians and it only gets more difficult for the russians i think that ukraine as long as the west sticks together and continues to support i think ukraine has a chance to to come out of this uh, on the right side
4: and in conclusion sir i, d- I just want to ask you Should the U.S. engage with Russia? Should the U.S. engage directly with the Kremlin to stop this bloodshed?
5: Well, here's what we should be doing. On April the 1st, 1 April, 130,000 young Russian men, 19 and 20 years old, have to report for duty at conscription centers. It's the scheduled next wave of conscription. That means 130,000 families are about to send their son and brother off to become cannon fodder as privates in the Russian army to fight in a war of Slavs against Slavs. I think if we could somehow reach even a third of those families and that they refuse to send their son to conscription, that would be like an earthquake inside Russia. And that, this is what we need is pressure, organic pressure from inside Russia. This is how this comes to a conclusion.
4: Retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, the former commander of U.S. forces in Europe. Sir, thank you for your time.
5: Uh, Thank you for the privilege.
0: The breaking news tonight. New satellite images show that a 40-mile-long convoy north of Kyiv has dispersed and redeployed, moving rocket launchers and towed artillery into local fields and wooded areas. The question is what to make of it, which is why we're glad we can turn to retired Army four-star general and former CIA director David Petraeus. General Porteus, appreciate you joining us. What is your reaction to the, these new images? What What do you make of, of what that convoy is doing?
3: Well, it's really just adhering to normal standards that they should have been adhering to all along. The standards to which our soldiers train is that when you stop, you don't stay on a road. Uh, you don't stay visible to anything from the air. You pull onto cover. Uh, whether it is into trees or whatever uh, you can find, uh, you certainly don't stay again, exposed the, the, the way that they were for so many days. It was really, again, staggering uh, that that happened. And you saw uh, in the footage that you're showing right now, in fact, another case where a, an armored battalion uh, is caught in the open, uh, apparently by a drone that appears to be filming this, may have been directing the fire as well. And again, it's sort of unconscionable that this would happen. They're also bunched together, as you can see. Uh, you would always want to stay uh, much farther apart than that. Uh, and so, again, these are basic standards uh, that clearly have not been established, and they're certainly not performing uh, in accordance with what normal standards would be for our forces.
0: You know, Klerzer Ward was talking about the defenses which are everywhere in a city like Kyiv, on every street, uh, you know, hedgehogs, uh, dig pits on sides of roads. And obviously we know about the Molotov cocktails that have been dispersed and obviously the shoulder fired weaponry and and the other weaponry that the U.S. and others have sent in. Given that, is it likely Russian forces are just going to try to level these cities before actually going in? Because you've talked about before, they don't have enough troops to really adequately undertake block by block urban combat.
3: No, that's correct. Uh, and as we discussed before, it's also incredibly physically demanding and mentally draining. Uh, the bottom line now: I'm starting to think Anderson they won't even be able to encircle Kiev. Uh, again, that blow struck against an armor regiment. And and by the way, the uh, Russian in that clip uh, that you played earlier is actually also reporting that the regimental commander was killed. Uh, that's an extraordinary blow. And you add that the, the other casualties. Uh, the other losses of armor and personnel, and so forth. um, You just can't keep sustaining that kind of loss. And the column from the east in particular, which is where this was ambushed, is so long and so vulnerable, uh, given the logistical lines that were required for that, uh, that there's just no way, I don't think, that they're going to be able to sustain their forces coming from that direction, which means they probably can't get around to the south and really close the city off, which could be very, very good news Uh, for Kiev, in the sense that at least it could be resupplied even if the Russians try to lay siege to it uh, from the other directions, from the north and to a degree from the west. But as you noted, again, what they will do is back off and they're just going to rubble the city uh, block by block. But normally you would need to move in at least to have observation of the fire, although they've certainly done lots of indiscriminate fire, uh, as we've seen in Mariupol uh, in particular. Uh, and that has that situation, I think, has to be the one that's really eating at the President President Zelensky, his Minister of Defense, the Chief of the General Staff, trying to figure out any way they could uh, to lift that siege, to break through to Mariupol, to restore the basic services and so forth. but it it's pretty clear they just don't have the reserves to do that, even though they have again they've also stopped the Russians around Kharkiv. And that thrust that was discussed earlier from Crimea towards Odessa, uh, it is stopped at a city called uh, Mikolaiv, uh, where the mayor is an absolute hero. He's turning into a real battlefield general um, and organizing an extraordinary defense. And if, if they've already rigged the bridges for destruction, uh, if they can't get across that river, they have to go much farther to, to the north and then down to the southwest to Odessa. And again, there's no way they'll maintain those logistical lines.
0: With Mariupol, which is a city it seems critical for Russian forces from their perspective to, to take um, for just for, for future reasons, they, they've allegedly, according to U.S. senior defense official, they've encircled it. Would mm-hmm. it be possible for, I mean, is, is, is the same thing at play there that to actually occupy that city to move in would be extremely difficult for Russian forces? Or, I mean, it's a a much smaller city obviously than Kyiv.
3: Yeah, no, I think what they're trying to do there, Anderson, is literally starve it into submission. Uh, The water is cut off, the power is cut off, uh, very, very desperate situation. Uh, You showed how bodies aren't even, you you can't even do proper burials for bodies at this point in time. And so what they're going to do is starve it until it submits, until the, the uh, officials there in charge surrender, uh, I assume is their hope. Because of course that will then enable them to complete the land bridge uh, from Crimea to the Donbass, the area of Southeast. So they will have denied that entire portion of the coast uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and so it's really a matter of time, uh, unless the Ukrainians can figure out how to break that siege somehow, Uh, and get supplies in, restore basic services, and so forth. And I'm sure that that is the issue that is really bedeviling them. And and as always, you know, commanders allocate shortages. You never have enough of anything. Um, And so what they may have to do is reallocate some forces from somewhere else where they seem to be doing better than perhaps they would feared when the plan was developed initially uh, to try to get down there. Otherwise, at some point in time, that will become the first major city Uh, in Ukraine to fall, it will also free up those forces that are encircling it, uh, to some degree at least, Um, and that could be a problem elsewhere as well.
0: Uh, General, just one final question. Just from a uh, a perspective of of a guerrilla fight or insurgent fight, how effective is a Molotov cocktail? Because clearly there are a lot of them around here, and I know they have an accelerant inside to make them stickier. one person here was telling me that against a tank or an army vehicle, that those are closed systems that do have air intake, and that if you throw it at the air intake, it essentially smokes out the people inside the tank. Is that true?
3: Well, again, we have some views about the Russian systems that so far aren't proving true. I mean, they're they're much less well equipped uh, than we believed, uh, and again, to believe that those systems work as advertised probably is worth at least asking about. Um, What you really need to do is get the hatches to pop somehow uh, in the normal way that that's done. And even our tanks going into Baghdad, they could get swarmed. And if the infantry is not around them to keep the enemy infantry off, in this case, perhaps guerrillas, insurgents, you can have a problem at some point in time. What you really want to do, obviously, is get the Molotov cocktail inside uh, the tank turret uh, and to do that, you've obviously got to get them to pop those hatches. And again, again, there are various ways. You could also perhaps, uh, depending on how exposed the engine grates are and so forth, there are places that are flammable, and that's what you're going to have to do uh, with that. Again, thin-skinned vehicles, they can be devastating, uh, and, and there are other circumstances in which they can be very valuable. But you, what you really have to do is swarm. And what we've seen, as we discussed earlier as well, Uh, Russians have been very poor at achieving combined arms effects. They send tanks alone without infantry, infantry alone without tanks, no engineers around them to help them with obstacles and so forth, and not supported by artillery uh, creeping along in front of the the fire along in front of them as required. Um, So, again, they could be very vulnerable. Uh, Or, as you saw, if if they're out in the open uh, and either ground or air observation can identify them, Uh, then the right forces can be brought to bear, as they were very impressively on that road. Again, you can't sustain that kind of loss day by day and still have combat-effective forces.